0: I'm going to ask Tim to come up and read our scripture reading, which is Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 20.
1: Okay, Luke 10, verses 10 through 20. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjects to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjects to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven.
0: Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we thank you for a chance to open up your word together, God, to, to see what you have for us. Um, God, to, to learn what it is that you have to te- teach us. Um, God, we pray that you would use this word to, to let us uh, see you in a fresh light, um, that we would understand you rightly, uh, that we would uh, get a picture and, a, and, and an understanding of your character, uh, of your calling um, for us. God and the great salvation that we have um, because of you, Father, we have so much to be thankful for um, as as we uh, go through our lives, despite the the um, difficulties and inconveniences, God, even even the tragedies that befall us, God, we know that you are uh, that you have blessed us in in more ways uh, than we could ever number, and we thank you for that, God. We thank you most of all for the salvation that you have worked in our lives. We thank you for um, the people that you put in our lives, um, who who uh, were were godly examples, um, God, who people who who spoke the gospel uh, into our lives, people who lived the gospel out. God, we thank you for faithful teachers, faithful pastors, faithful parents um, that have have presented to us um, the truths of the gospel and opened the door um, for salvation through that. God, we are um, who we are because of the way that you have used those people in our lives, and so we thank you. Uh, we ask that in uh, this time that you would use your word to conform our hearts to the image of Christ, and that you would shine a light on this text, that we would be convicted by it, that we would be comforted by it, that we would be um, God-encouraged um, and God-informed uh, that, that you would use um, your word um, to whatever effect uh, each of our hearts uh, needs. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're continuing on in in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And so I've mentioned before that I teach a a homeschool class and uh, I teach history and church history to to a group of, of high schoolers. And this was my last week of teaching. And so um, I'm probably going to teach a couple of single classes throughout the rest of next semester or next quarter. Um, but, but for the most part, my, my run is, is done on, on uh, uh, for this, for this year. And um, we are in the era of church history and, and, and U S history, world history that is right before the reformation. And there's this era, uh, I mean, uh, right before the revolution. And there's this, this era that happens that we call the great awakening in, in, uh, Anglo English and American um, uh, church history, and, and it's a super important time. It was this, it was a revival, it was a coming to the Lord, and and one of the things that is often drawn out, one of the sort of the spotlights that is is in that in that time period, um, is is a certain man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a Congregationalist pastor in the United States in Massachusetts, and he preached a particular sermon that has has sort of gained a a uh, an awareness even beyond the events of the Great Awakening and him personally. And, and it's a sermon that is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, the, the, the significance of that sermon or its, its, its perceived significance um, is so much so that a lot of times if you're studying in a secular history class in a or a section. Uh, a secular literature class, you will study that sermon. You will read that sermon in the context of of reading American history or reading American literature. Um, it's that that kind of significant um, picture, and it's often presented in those kind of literature classes as sort of this hellfire and brimstone kind of of, of sermon, um, and it, it sort of depicts this repressive Puritan era of colonialism, right? Um, I don't think any of those things are accurate, but that's usually the way that it is uh, presented. And when you go to the sermon, um, uh, some of that that perception is justified, right? It is it is certainly a sermon about the realities and the horrors of of judgment um, of hell. It's about the the tenuous predicament that all of humanity finds itself in every moment. Um, but it's also a sermon about about grace about the reality that there is only a breath that separates all of us from eternity, but that God's mercy, that God's grace, um, that in those things that, that he gives us another day, right? He gives us another moment to turn to him, to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ that. Um, and so again, the picture of the sermon is that we are being held from judgment by the hands of God. And the only thing that's separating us from, from the pit, um, is the fact that, that, that God has us and is keeping us from falling into those things. And th- that sermon, in a lot of ways, I think, has connections to the passage that we're reading today. Because this passage is about many of those same um, ideas. It's about, it's about the gravity of our decisions. It's about the reality of hell and judgment. It's about, um, the, the glory and the joy of, of salvation. It's about heaven. It's about hell. Um, and all those things play out in this passage. And so obviously as you can guess, um, a passage that brings up a lot of themes that are very uncomfortable to a lot of people, Um, that they don't like talking about these things, that that many people throughout certainly the last hundred years of the church have decided, well, we'll just come up with some reason why Jesus didn't say these things or he didn't mean these things or they don't apply to us now or something like that. Um, But the reality is, is that they're there, right? Jesus shows us the consequences of rejecting the offer of salvation. He also shows us the glory and the comfort of receiving that salvation. Okay? And so we're gonna just gonna dive in and kind of kind of go through the passage and talk about these things as we go. So verse 10, he begins by saying, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Okay? Now remember the context of, of this passage because we sort of stopped abruptly in the middle of this text last week. What's going on in the middle of this passage is Jesus is sending out this group of disciples called the 72, right? So Jesus has his twelve disciples that he has sent out uh, as on as evangelists and as missionaries, but he is also sending out this larger group of his disciples obviously most of whom we don't know their names, sending them out to, to, uh, to heal and to cast out demons and to, uh, preach the good news, right. Also to prepare those towns for Jesus coming to these places, um, and, and to receive him. And so we learned last week, God said, you know, he would provide for us during that time of ministry and mission, that it wouldn't be easy, but, but that we would go and we are called to go to these villages and to, to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom. And that was the 72's job. That is our job, right? That is the job of all followers of Jesus Christ. All disciples are meant to do these things, to take the gospel, um, to, to the places that we go. Okay. And so you see, we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is very upfront. About the cost of following Jesus. And so you remember we've we've talked about how we are to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. Jesus is very upfront about those things. We are sometimes nervous about telling people about the real cost of following Jesus, but, but Jesus never does that. Um, but he also in this passage, what we notice is that Jesus is not shy about presenting what is on the line. If we reject the offer of salvation, he's not uh, nervous about pointing out the fact that we're not promised unlimited opportunities to come to Christ. That just like these towns, the kingdom had come near in a moment and they had an opportunity to receive it, but they rejected it. And now that moment had passed. A chance to welcome the rule of Christ into their lives, to acknowledge their sin, to renounce their sin and rebellion, to receive the unmerited gift of salvation. It had come near, and yet the people in these towns potentially had missed it. So, again, uh, Jesus is sort of saying, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to say when these situations um, arise. Remember a few weeks back, we talked about Jesus when he had gone home to his hometown of Nazareth. And the people in Nazareth had rejected Jesus as Messiah. They had rejected his teaching. And we talked about the fact that as far as we can tell from the scriptures, Jesus never returned to his hometown. That their opportunity to receive him as Messiah... Was that one time and then he never came back there again. Now obviously we don't, those people could have come to Jesus later and all these things like that. But as a picture, it said something to us that Jesus presents himself and offers this, this moment for salvation. And, and the consequences of missing that opportunity are terrible. The consequences of missing that opportunity are stark for us. So Jesus goes on and says this, verse 12, I tell you, for those towns that have rejected your message, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Okay, if you've if you've read the Bible at all, if if you uh, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you're probably aware of of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe even if you're not a, a believer and not familiar with the, the Bible, um, Sodom and 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 it's sort of. Twin City, Gomorrah are synonymous with judgment in the Bible. It is the poster town for judgment and violent judgment. Sodom was incinerated, right? The entire town, in fact, the entire region was vaporized functionally in fire and in sulfur for their wickedness. The only other town, I think, in, in the Bible that even comes close to being the same kind of picture would be the, the, the town of Babylon, the city of Babylon in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Babylon takes on this connotation of being this, this city that is, is being prepared for destruction. But probably even then, Sodom's the one, right? Sodom is the, the place that we think of when we think of God's judgment. And so basically the way Jesus is talking about it, if there's a city that's on the bottom of the heap, okay, um, if there's a city that is at the bottom of this pile, it is Sodom. And yet, Jesus says they will fare better in the judgment than these towns that have had the opportunity to receive the gospel, to accept Jesus Christ, to re- and, and, and accept the message of the disciples, and yet they haven't. They have rejected it. That it will be more pleasant for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for these towns. And so here's the crazy thing about the gospel that we forget sometimes. The gospel exhibits God's mercy like nothing else, right? We are are shown the incredible message of God's salvation and mercy through Jesus Christ in the gospel. No question. That's why it's called the gospel. It's the good news. But we also have to recognize that it does something else. When we reject the offer of the gospel, it compounds our guilt. Like It makes our guilt even worse. Hebrews says it like this, chapter 2, For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every violation and act of disobedience received its just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Essentially, he's saying this, he's saying, man, if God presented to us the law and and we recognize that every breach of the law, every time that we didn't obey the law was incurring judgment on us. All right. How much more so if when God has come and offered us mercy at the cost of his own son's life, right, the blood bought flesh tearing Mm. life of Jesus, that's what it costs this offer of forgiveness if we reject that then what is the what is the the consequence what is the guilt that we bear because of those things life death eternity hang in the balance every single second with these issues and the cost of rejecting the gospel is horrific And see, here's the thing. The world is uncomfortable talking about judgment. Unbelievers are uncomfortable talking about judgment. Christians are often uncomfortable talking about judgment. Pastors are uncomfortable talking about judgment. Jesus is not uncomfortable talking about judgment. Jesus doesn't hold back and say, well, this is sort of rough stuff, and I I just want to tell, tell, tell you the good stuff, right? Jesus, as he talks to these people, he says the consequences of rejection are stark. In fact, they are worse than the worst thing that you could think of. And so as much as hell is a sticking point to the world oftentimes, the world will say, I don't believe in Christianity and all that stuff because of this, that whole issue of hell. Jesus doesn't back off of it. In fact, as we read the rest of the passage, he doubles down on talking about it. Verse 15, he says, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades for rejection. And again, as, as a, as a, something that we need to be aware of and recognize in our own lives, Notice who Jesus is talking to. He's not saying, woe to you, Rome, and woe to you, Athens, and woe to you, you, city, pagan city on the other side of the world. He says, woe to you, Horizon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Do you know where those cities are? They are within about a five-mile, ten-mile triangle of each other on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus' stomping ground. This is... Jewish followers of God central, okay? This is Maribel Alcoa Greenback, okay? He's not looking to these people and saying, all the the pagan nations of the world out there, you better watch out because judgment is coming if you reject the gospel. He's saying hometown folk, people next door, people who think they know God but are rejecting him recognize the cost of rejection. Of course, these things are still true for all those Gentile peoples out there, but Jesus isn't particularly talking to them. And maybe when those people are presented with these things, when these disciples show up to tell people about the gospel, and they're obviously not Jesus. We just read a story a couple of weeks ago where a man comes looking for help because his son is demon possessed and the disciples fail. They're unable to help him because they have not, they are not following Christ the way they should. And so again, we're presented with this thing again where we think, man, uh, wouldn't it be right to have this excuse to say, Jesus, I didn't reject you. I rejected all these goofballs who you sent. Right. I rejected these people who came and tried to tell me the message, but but they were imperfect people. And and I, it was it was really them I was rejecting. It was your church I was rejecting. It wasn't you that I was rejecting Jesus. But the problem is, it's never that simple. And Jesus shows us that he makes that point in the context of these woes of judgment. Verse 16, what does he say? He says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Okay. Again, the starkness of that, the, 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 and it's something that we have to man, the the depth of the responsibility that, that, that falls on us for those things. To hear the gospel from his messenger is to hear it from him, from Jesus. To reject the messenger is to reject the one who sent it, Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the, tr- the Father. And so Jesus is saying, at the very least, man, if you don't trust th- these, these, these messengers, at the very least, you should have gone to the source. You should have gone to Jesus himself to see the truths, to see that, that the things that these disciples who were going to these towns, to see the things they were saying to you about who Jesus is and what he had come to do, um, were not their
1: opinions,
0: right? Despite all their flaws, um, it was the truth, and we have the opportunity to go and see that truth, but that's not what happened. These people are presented with life, and and many of them reject. And again, the cost of rejection is so high. It is. You we are called to believe the gospel. Believe the message because, man, at the end of the day, nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else is going to be that significant. That is the predicament of our society. It has always been there, probably, man, but it is particularly the predicament of our secular moment and the way secularism is moving forward. And as it becomes more and more in our face, because the secular world doesn't want to believe in heaven or hell. It doesn't particularly believe in a personal God. If it believes in any God at all, if, if religion has any place in the world, then, then the world says, man, it should be here to, f- to meet physical needs of people, right? It should be there to address worldly issues. So shut up about all this salvation stuff. Stop trying to scare people with eternal judgment. Stop talking about sin. Feed the hungry, assist the poor, religious people. That's what your function should be in this world. Now, for certain, I think we should do those things, right? We've talked about that a number of times. We talk about it all the time. We're supposed to care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and the poor, the oppressed, practical helps for people, a provision. We do that with the food drive we're doing right now, right? Practical helps of comfort where we come alongside people and, 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 and help them. But here's the deal, and Jesus is reminding us of this here. It's never the main thing. It's never the most important thing. Those practical helps, as good and commanded by God as they are, they are never the main thing. Notice what he says in verse 17 to disciples. And it sort of shifts because we're, we've been talking about judgment, but we're going to see the glory, the other side of the coin too, the, the incredible blessing of salvation that we have. Because the 72 go out and we don't hear anything about any of their story, right? Like Jesus said, tells them what to do. And then all of a sudden the next passage says, and the 72 returned with joy, right? This is weeks later, months later. They've gone out and they've done all these things and they've come back. But what are they saying to Jesus? Verse 17, it says, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name, right? We were going out there and casting out demons, just like we failed to do a couple of weeks ago. This time it was working, man. We had power over the forces of evil in the world. Isn't that awesome? Like, isn't it awesome to go out there and to stop bad stuff and to feel like we have accomplished something good for the people around us? Isn't that great? And Jesus says, you know what? I saw Satan all like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Okay, so let's pause right there and think about what that promise is saying. The the disciples are coming back and saying, look at all the good works we did. Look at all the oppression and injustice we stopped. Look at all the things that we did that helped people. And then Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's probably a reference to Isaiah chapter 14. It's a passage about the king of Tyre, all right, and his arrogance and how God was going to bring him low. But throughout church history, when you read that passage, you go, man, this language about this human king of Tyre sounds a little too elevated to just be about the king of Tyre. It must also be—it's it's a type, right? It's, it has a twofold meaning, and the other meaning that most commentators have said is that this is a picture. This is the description of what happened with Satan. That Satan was—was was this? It's, it's a whole lot of where we get our what you think you know about Satan, right? Because if I ask you, you probably say, "Yeah, I know some things about what the Bible teaches about Satan. He was—he was an angel. He was a fallen angel. He was cast out for rebellion, and, and these different things like that." Most of those things that we know about Satan come from some of these passages that are kind of cryptic, okay? But Jesus seems to be rest, uh, 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 um, referencing that very passage, that Satan's power has been halted right now, that the disciples have been given power by Jesus to conquer Satan in the short term. That they have been given authority to, what, tread on serpents and scorpions. That's not literal, right? That's That's a picture of the powers of Satan in the world, that you tread on those things. You have power over the enemy, he says. Nothing can stop you in these things. In the fact that Jesus has come near, in the fact that Jesus, the kingdom, has come near, the presence of the kingdom is a real defeat for Satan, okay? So when Jesus is there, Satan has to be somewhere else. Satan has ruled over this world at this time, right? He has ruled over it, uh, we're told that, that we all previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What was, what was Paul saying? He was saying, and everybody on earth is basically been living in, in, under satanic rule, okay? But Jesus' advent, Jesus coming into the world has changed something. That Jesus stepping into our world um, has, has become a beachhead against Satan. It is the beginning, you know, and we've used this illustration before, it's the Normandy invasion of the world, that Jesus coming into the world has started this this place where Satan has no power. And as the kingdom advances, that power continues to be pushed out to the extent that wherever Jesus is, Satan isn't. Satan is pushed out of those places the way light dispels darkness. And that's what Jesus has said to these guys. He's like, man, you're right. You have had power over these things, and you have done incredible things to stop evil and to stomp out Satan in all these places. And we have that power to fight those things in our own world, right, to fight against and to have real victory against the ugliness and the destruction that Satan it has wrought in, in in our world and in our lives. And all you have to do is listen to the testimony of Christians. All you have to do is listen to the testimony of Christians who will say, Man, I was trapped in this kind of situation of, of addiction or or abuse or or self-centeredness and all these things. And I got saved and God pulled me out of those things. And there has been real change in my life. It doesn't mean that every single aspect of your life has changed, but there's real victory over some of these these evil things in our lives. The disciples have done that. They tread on scorpions. They tread on serpents. But then Jesus says those victories are insignificant next to salvation. All right. Not bad. Good things that we'll continue to see, but next to salvation, they are insignificant. Verse 20. And we'll close on this tonight. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in these things that you've had power over, Satan. Do not rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So again, the consequence of rejection is so high. But conversely, the glory of acceptance is high too. In fact, it's paramount. It is the most important thing. All that other stuff is good stuff. And we are even commanded as followers of Jesus to be about that stuff. But they are not what we boast in. They're not what we rejoice in. We focus on salvation because salvation is preeminent. It's the most important thing. It is the thing, right? It is the whole point of all of it. Nothing bears as much significance as salvation. And, again, we catch flack about this from the world all the time, sometimes even from the church, from, certainly from the liberal church. Man, you guys focus too much on salvation. You're always talking about people coming to Christ and people getting saved. Um, why don't you just focus on what's going on in the world? You, you ignore all this real pain and real suffering that's going on. And here's the bottom line, man. We don't apologize for placing salvation as the most important thing. We don't apologize for, for what you could call evangelical math. Okay, uh, even the best outcomes of justice and human flourishing minus salvation equals nothing. Insignificant in, in the course of the world. Again, in the short run, sure, we would rather have those things than not have them. But in, in eternity, those things are going to be insignificant. And yet, by the same token, salvation, even with all the junk of the world... And a lot of suffering and difficulty is of inestimable value. Like we would still say, man, it's a win if salvation is present. We know all this. We, we know it because we've all been to funerals, right? And you go to a funeral, and you know what people do? If if there was even a glimmer of hope that that person was in Christ, that that person was a follower of Jesus, it's like the whole group focuses on that. Because in just that little hope has the potential to make everything else okay. All the junk, all the garbage, all the shortcomings, all the, the, the missed opportunities. If we really believe, and if that person really was in Christ, then there's a piece of it that says, man, it's all okay. It's not the way we would have liked to have seen things gone, but it's all okay at the end of the day because what was truly important was that that person was in Christ. And you know what? By the same token, when that thing is not there, there is this weird eeriness to a funeral that no matter how good a person that person seemed or how good a dad or how good a friend or their interests or their, or their philanthropy or whatever else, there's this piece where we go, maybe it was all for nothing because we don't know where this person is in eternity. And man, we don't like talking about that stuff. Even to the extent that, and I think it's, it's, it's a right reflex. I mean, you go to a funeral and, 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 and we don't think that was there. That salvation was not there. Typically, the pastor just doesn't address it. What he does is he presents the gospel to those who are there and calls them to come to Jesus Christ because we don't want to deal with that. Okay? We don't want to talk about the stark sadness and ugliness of that. Jesus talks about it. okay? He warns us of it, and he says, folks, you have no idea what the rejection of the gospel is going to cost you. And you have no idea the glory, of what you receive and the significance and the importance of what you have received when you accept the gospel. So again, I think for us, all these sections are, are dealing with what it looks like for us to be disciples of Jesus. And I think at the very least what this passage does is it reminds us of the stakes that we live in every single day. It reminds us of what is at stake with the lives we lead and the things we say and the things we share and the way we talk to people and the way we live our lives, that eternity hangs in the balance in everything that we do. So that's what I want us to to, to take with us as we close today. Um, I don't know what that. Is. In terms of an application, I don't know what that thing is, right? I don't know what to say other than uh, we all need to stop walking around the world like everything's just sort of cool, you know, like no big deal. Like everything's just just easy. You believe what you believe. I, I believe what I believe. No big deal. Everything's fine. We're all just going about our lives and everything's cool. And that's not the world we live in. It's not the stakes that we that we have. The stakes are life and death. The stakes are heaven and hell. The stakes are eternity with God or eternity separated from God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask God to impress these things upon our lives. Father God, I think that many times when we come to, uh, your word and we come to passages like this, there is a revulsion in our hearts, not because of, uh, a realization of the truth, not because we, uh, of any righteousness in us, God, but because of the opposite of unrighteousness in us, that we read a text like this and, and we, we ask, uh, certainly, uh, we couldn't be worthy of these things, um this is too harsh. This is too, the judgment is too stern. Um, that God is unjust, that he is unkind. Uh, if this is the kind of, uh, of God, he is, um, got to prevent, present us, uh, with this level of judgment. Father, I ask that you would remind us that you would impress upon us that that is a lie. Um, we are worthy of this judgment that it is what we deserve. God, that we have thumbed our nose at you and everything that you have ever said and created and intended and valued. God, that is the nature of our rebellion. God, and it is worthy of judgment. God, help us to, not live in, in light of our own self-righteousness, thinking that, that we are better um, than what these things say we are, are deserving of. But God, you are gracious in the fact that in spite of what we deserve, you have offered us salvation through the gospel. You have, at the cost of your own son's life, given us the opportunity to be reconciled to you, to know you, to be welcomed into your family and live with you in eternity. We have that not because of anything that we deserve, but because of your goodness and graciousness to us. God, what, what a miracle it is that you would offer salvation to undeserving people at your cost and not ours. What an incredible grace and an incredible mercy. God, and how even more incredible it would be for us to look that grace and mercy in the face and reject it. To say that we don't care and that we are not interested and that you can peddle those things somewhere else. God, how could the judgment not pile up on us in those things? Father, I thank you that you have opened the hearts of of people in this room to your gospel I thank you that that we are not those who have rejected the gospel. We are not those who have turned from Jesus Christ. God, we sin in all kinds of ways. We mess up and we, uh, we insult the gospel that has saved us every single day, God. But we thank you that you have saved us in spite of those things. We thank you that you have opened our eyes and our hearts to the goodness and grace of your gospel and that we have received it. Father, we pray for those in our lives, our family members, our friends, those in our our circles of influence in our community, God, that they would not be the people who reject this gospel when it is presented to them, that they would not suffer the consequence of that rejection, God, but they would see your son, Jesus Christ, for who he is, that they would receive him into their lives, God, and that that you would conquer sin in their lives, that you would uh trample on those those scorpions and those serpents that you talk about that we would see Satan and his power and his and his lies cast down in our lives. God, that we would revel, that we would rejoice in the glory of the salvation that you have wrought for us in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for those blessings in our in our midst. God, I ask for those blessings um, for those that are close to us and those we love. Father, do these things, draw people to yourself, convict them of their sin, and open their eyes to the gospel. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
1: Look down in love And come above With thy spirit satisfied
0: Thou hast sought
1: me Thou hast bought me And thy purchase Lord am I Let me find i
0: Amen. Uh, good to see you tonight. I'm glad you could be with us. Again, a, again, a, a, a tough passage, um, and, uh, but one that is, is necessary. Um, one that is, I think, uh, probably something that is not heard often in the world, um, certainly not in the secular world. Um, sadly, probably not in the church, um, but something that we need to apply to our hearts and recognize. Um, we're going to deal with a, a, a sort of interesting and difficult passage in some ways, um, next week as well, um, as we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, um, which again is a, man, if you wanted to pick two weeks back to back, one on hell and one on God's sovereignty and salvation, man, those would be the issues And here we are, we've got them back to back. So, um, will be another, another, um, uh, important passage that we we look into next week. But um, hope you have a great week um, and uh, hope that you can join us next week as we discuss those things. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards
1: you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.